0: <clears throat> so we've talked it's loud enough, huh? <laughs> is that like too loud back there? It's echoing in my ears. It's okay. Um, <clears throat> we've been talking quite a Jesus loud <laughs> <laughs> It is kind of loud, yeah Carol, you can move the mic your mouth. Oh, they told me last time it was too far away from my mouth. Now that's better, huh. It sounds better to me anyway. That's all that counts. Uh, okay, take that out. Delete that. <laughs> <Start up. laughs> okay, third time. So <laughs> we've been talking a lot about the uh the Kalatia, the difficult um distorting habits mental factors, states of mind that arise <laughs> all too frequently and are so familiar. And uh, a lot of our moment-to-moment mindfulness practice is in learning to recognize, to really meet, explore, not take personally. Really uh, the whole practice is about purifying the habits of heart and mind, the habits of chitta. But as we've been saying all along, it's not <clears throat> our personal effort that does the work. All we do is put in the, the willingness to remember, am I aware? Am I aware? Am I aware? And the steadiness of awareness is what allows wisdom to arise. And wisdom does the work of purifying the heart, mind, the habits. So what I want to talk a, a bit about tonight is, is one of the wholesome habits. So actually just to know that in the moments of pure mindfulness awareness and wisdom is present, in that moment greed, hatred, confusion aren't. Even It seems like the mindfulness, the awareness is noticing greed. It's like, you know, two quick moments together. But in that moment of mindfulness, the greed, the aversion, delusion is not being fed, is not really present in that quick moment there are wholesome qualities that actually arise naturally. You could say replace them, or more, when Steve read that, that uh, famous sutta about the, the mind is radiant, you know, and the radiance is hidden, obscured by the kalesas. So you could think of these wholesome, beautiful qualities as being the qualities that naturally arise In the appropriate, in response to the appropriate circumstances, when the heart mind is pure, in a moment. One of the things I love about the way the Buddha talks about it and our experience, how the mind works, is it's just moment to moment. Every moment arising and passing so quickly that. You know, that's the uh, impermanence part that can seem unsettling. But it's what allows for change, for cultivation, for development. So maybe you've seen here, you've had some really rotten moments. Long series of rotten moments. But it does change. And when we talk about purifying or noticing the wholesome, we don't have to wait until it's absolutely steady state, never going to change, and then we maybe acknowledge something wholesome is arising. Just a moment just a moment. So when delusion is seen through, wisdom obviously is there. It's wisdom that sees through delusion, the quality of mind. When greed is recognized with wisdom, the beautiful quality <clears throat> that's present in the chitta is, well, non-greed that can also manifest as, you could say, relinquishment Sometimes it's said renunciation, but that's just simply the putting down of wanting, of needing, you know, which can lead into the ability of the heart to be really generous because it doesn't need to hold on. And then dosa, the hatred aversion quality is, this is how the Buddha talks about the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, right intention, wise intention, wise thought, that um, the thoughts of greed, Seen through with non greed replaced by relinquishment, generosity. Thoughts of the aversive is it divided into two sort of thoughts, thoughts of ill will or the mental quality of ill will, instead, is, is metta, kindness, friendliness. And thoughts of cruelty or when really the awareness is meeting a difficulty, suffering. Kind of cruelty aversion is what comes up in the habits, but when there's clear seeing, purity of heart, mind, chitta, at that moment, mindfulness, awareness with wisdom, then what naturally emerges instead is compassion. And sure, we can cultivate metta, we can cultivate compassion. Absolutely, we can cultivate. We, we we cultivate the conditions for wisdom, which is the steadiness of awareness. We can't make wisdom occur. But what i want to talk about tonight i want to specifically talk about compassion as the natural arising the natural manifestation of wisdom and non-aversion in a moment of a mindfulness wisdom that when when the particular object is a suffering one so not to think this is some far away um, experience And not something we have to create. I need to be a compassionate person. Because we know just deciding what to do doesn't work. But more the the point of what I want to really, mm, the angle I want to talk about tonight, really is kind of hoping to encourage us to keep on going, is that mm, the practice we're doing of moment-to-moment remembering awareness, the awareness that, as we've said a lot, that simplicity of connectedness, just totally surrendering into the moment without adding extra, without pulling away, without aversion or judgment or clinging. That quality of awareness, when it is aware of a suffering experience, takes on the flavoring of compassion, karuna. It's not an act of will. And how the habits of our heart and mind are purified, that's the point I'm wanting to make, is exactly this practice. And so you may realize, since I want to mainly talk about compassion, it means I'm also going to be talking about difficult suffering experience. Anybody had any of those since they came? Right. Right. Because as we were, I think we said this morning, you know, really appreciate the amount of commitment. And at times, I think for all of us, really quite some courage to keep showing up here. To keep showing up, uh, not even the external, but with your own heart, your own mind, the own habits of your mind, the things that arise here. For everyone, there's times that it's enormously difficult, painful, scary, whatever your particular flavor is. And the habits of our mind, of the world, of our life, are so much telling us, this is wrong, get out of here, right? Go in the opposite direction, fix it, fix it, fix it. Really aversion. So much the habit. And so every moment, just the quick moment, that there's that sense of just a simple awareness, You know, we're waiting for the huge momentum that sees through it and all, but just that moment of awareness that's willing to meet fear. No big thing happens, but that quick moment where the aversion isn't the go-to response, where we call in the awareness instead, that's a little moment of purifying the habit, of shifting the habit. So I just want to talk different ways about the compassion. It's, it's, in terms of our practice here, ways to notice it, why it isn't the natural, I mean, it's natural, but why it isn't always our habitual response, just in hopes of um, encouraging us all to consciously recognize this wholesome factor, because it's its, it's so amazing, really, how it works, that when wisdom recognizes the suffering aspects, greed, hatred, confusion. When it's just recognized by wisdom, that doesn't necessarily mean it goes away immediately, but wisdom doesn't, just naturally doesn't feed the unwholesome. It's not an act of will. Right? So when you really see something is causing your suffering, wisdom sees it. Not just, I think I should stop, but wisdom sees it. Let me just put that down. And a few people have mentioned examples of that in, in their experience, just little things. That's the natural effect of wisdom, that the, we, un, we recognize that greed and aversion don't work, basically, for what we think they're doing, to see reality as it is. The other side is, when wisdom, when the, when the purified mind heart in a moment recognizes beautiful qualities, compassion, wisdom, metta, generosity, that the attention of the wise awareness actually feeds and strengthens the wholesome. Again, it's not an act of will. It's not like an act of greed. Oh, this feels good. Let's have more of it. That's not strengthening the wholesome. But just the awareness of generosity, the happiness it brings, it inclines the mind, the heart towards more generosity. Being with a suffering, difficult experience with compassion, recognizing the compassion is a beautiful state of mind-heart. It inclines the mind towards another arising of a moment of compassion. It's so cool. We don't have to do this as an act of will. We can't. But this is where, for me, so much trust comes in really the nature of how the mind and heart works. And it gives me the, the faith, the willingness to show up again when it's like not really where I think I want to be in that particular moment. So to define compassion, one of the definitions of karuna is the, the, the quivering of the heart when connected with pain or suffering, the tenderness, the tender quivering, the connectedness of heart and mind when we are connected with suffering. That's just the, the mental quality of it, the mental factor. It, of course, strengthening, when it strengthens into action, then it manifests as the wish to alleviate the suffering of whatever beings we're in touch with. And in, um, the, the vastest aspiration of compassionate practice would be the aspiration to practice our whole life, to awaken with the intention of using our practice in order to help alleviate the suffering of all beings. So that's vast and beautiful and inspiring to me. But tonight I really want to talk in terms of our practice here, by and large. So the Dalai Lama is kind of, you know, the world expert on compassion, if we were (laughs) going to look for one of the world experts anyway. He described, when it was asked, how does compassion develop in our experience, And he said, you know, it develops from deep insight into what suffering actually is. And guess how we get that deep insight into what suffering actually is. Yes. By being really present, by focusing, by opening to the suffering, the difficulty in our own experience. Where else are we going to start? But in our own experience. As Alexis spoke about the first noble truth last night a bit, it's really the sense that, that unreliability is one part. Another part is that all living beings at times suffer. Not all the time, every moment, but it's something that unites us as living beings. Rather than something to be a cause of shame or alienation or it's a mistake which I know is often the way I feel, you know, something's gone really wrong, we want to go hide until it's better, we don't want people to know. But actually it's a source, it can be a source of recognizing our unity, our commonality. And he goes on, the Dalai Lama, to describe that by opening to focusing on our own experience of suffering, and obviously he doesn't say it, but it's with, with uh Mindful awareness, not with aversion, right? We could focus with aversion. We're clearly talking about with the mind that's pure in that moment, just recognizes it. He says, then it deepens, to with a a, in strengthens into a sense of empathy, connectedness with other beings. So, beginning with this just moment of being, just fully present, without agenda. Without aversion or clinging with a moment of our own suffering in whatever way, big little doesn't matter, moment after moment by itself it starts to strengthen into empathy connection with beings, and sort of like my particular suffering in that moment becomes an expression of the suffering of all beings. I mean we can think our way into it, but I 'm talking just in terms of our awareness here, this really can happen. it often does happen. I remember oh many years ago I was in in a hospital. I was in a room with three other women and um, I was there for some days and just one day when I wasn't particularly feeling sorry for myself but just kind of looking around and saying, oh wow, look what I'm going through. There's these three women going through their own suffering. How many people are in this hospital? How many hospitals are in this town? It was Northampton, not such a big town but there's like four or five hospitals around and then just keep spreading out, spreading out, spreading out. How many human beings at this moment are suffering some kind of real pain, illness? You know, it's fast. Our mind can't comprehend it. But that sense of uh, strengthening from, oh, poor me, to just, wow, this is the human condition. That's a quality of compassion of unity. It takes us out of our isolation, out of our self-involvement. And so, this is really why the difficult times on retreat are so important. And, you know, we always, I always think, well, later I look back, yeah, I learned a lot. It was so important. But in the time of it, you go, yeah, I'm so glad this is happening. I'm really, no, this is the important, this is really the nub of the retreat. I'm so glad, you know, (laughs) And I'm really lost in this total frustration for days. Um, But this is really where the rubber meets the road, you could say, of our practice, of awareness. And so I'm not saying I should, but this is where we can really start to explore because what's purifying, what's arising in our present moment experience, as we've said, is the how things have come to be in this moment as this moment's particular culmination of all the different conditions that have come together, which there's no way we can know what all the conditions are that brought this moment is there. I mean, I love when I start thinking, don't start thinking about it because there's nowhere to stop. If you start, it's like Thich Nhat Hanh holding up the piece of paper and saying, you know, what's in this paper? And you can't stop anywhere. You start with trees and the water and the sunlight and the people that grew it and the earthworms that till the soil. And it goes on forever. Anything is like that. If you start thinking of the conditions that brought you to this moment, there's nowhere to stop. We're back at the Big Bang. You know, there's really, really no way to know what what is part of this particular condition? So that's just arising. You could say that's our past condition, that's our past karma. To sit here and go, I'm so bad because this is happening. I'm a failure because this is happening. I can't meditate. I'll never understand the pure mind because this is happening. That's, that's the habit of aversion, right? Turned inward, turned outward. That's our usual go-to mode. But what's really purifying the heart and mind isn't that that stuff shouldn't be arising. That's out of our control, right? It's out of our control. But the m- way in that moment that awareness and wisdom is receiving that moment, that's where in that moment the heart mind, the quality of the chitta, the heart mind, is being purified or not. That's the place. That the whole practice of purification of the habits of heart and mind is occurring. So you may not think it's much. You're frustrated. You know, okay, frustration is like this. And there's a moment of just being with it. You think, but nothing happened. It's still frustrating. Okay, that moment wasn't a moment of purifying the heart. That was an aversive moment. But the one before, oh, yeah, frustration is like this. That is shifting the habit of a virgin of heart and mind. So that is just so important to start to and continue to recognize it. I find it not that you're expecting some big bang, but just to understand how this works. So how do you recognize it? Nowhere else to go. Mindfulness, awareness in the next moment. How we pay attention, how the mind's meeting each moment is is the process of purifying the heart and mind. All the different practices, not just this one, are all working on that, on that level. So, as I was saying, the habit so deeply ingrained in most of us when confronted with difficult experience. I like how payment children... Um, describes it. She says, rather than talking about suffering or difficult or painful, why not, she says, substitute the word unwanted experience. I like that because it kind of, it kind of describes really the experience. The experience is, I don't want this to be happening or if it really, I want it to be happening, but to someone else, no, not here. <laughs> I'd like to read about it and feel compassion for that poor person, but I really don't want it happening here right now. Um, but I like that because it takes it right down. to This is what's happening. So she, so it's so reflective, reflexive, really. When something painful, difficult, unwanted comes up, it's just that, pff, the cringe back, the the pull away, you know, and that's the aversion. That's just the habit. Let's let's get out of here. Let's protect ourselves from it, you know. And the fear can come. And there is a. She says. Um, you know, many people, when she's talking about um, compassion for all beings, people say, I have so much suffering of my own, I can't even be with my own suffering. You know, how can I open to the suffering of the world? It's too much to even think about. So we're not saying that as a thought, what one should do. What we can do here on the retreat with our awareness is really explore both the reflexive action of the re, of the aversion, anger pulling away when that's occurring, right? That When there's that calatia, that distortion in the awareness, we notice it, right? Just what we've been saying, notice the attitude in the mind when confronted with unwanted experience. Notice when that reaction is present, but notice when it's not present. That compassionate response of simply being able to be present with the unwanted without adding anything extra. Payment Children, again, she talks about um, how really at core we, we have this tender heart, this real tenderness. That's that quivering of the heart when connected with the unwanted, with difficulty. But our, our training and our fear and, and the difficulty of it is so that we are going around as if we're trying to protect ourselves from feeling, like, you know, it's scary, right? She uses the image of a sea anemone, you know, what that is a kind of a, an animal, I think it's an animal in the sea that has long tendrils, a very soft core that has long tendrils, and if anything even gets near to touch it, it shuts down, you know, to protect the very soft heart. And she says, we're kind of like that, but we're using aversion to protect. And the very act of protection is what's increasing our confusion, our distortion, our separation. Famous children. Kinship with the suffering of others, the inability to continue to regard it from afar, is the discovery of our soft spot. She calls the discovery of bodhicitta. This bodhicitta, this tenderness for life, awakens when we can no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. But when we protect ourselves so that we don't feel that pain, that protection becomes like an armor, an armor that imprisons the softness of our heart. We do everything we can think of not to feel anything threatening. Does that sound familiar? We try to prolong feeling good about ourselves. But then we end up, she says, I love this image, spending our life all tensed up like if, if we were sitting in a dentist chair our whole life. <laughs> you know, I can really relate to that. <laughs> but, you know, this is the habit. And this is the belief, you know, no, this should not be happening. That's the misunderstanding of the first noble truth. And someone, I think someone was saying in in a group today, I never know where I heard it. Alexis say it last night. Did someone say it in a group? Did I say it yesterday? I don't know where stuff comes from anymore. But um, these habits are really reinforced because that's really what's in society around us. You know, I find from the media, in particular, when they're interviewing on the radio somebody who's just experienced something terrible. First, they go up and shove a mic in their face, which is already weird. But it could be a personal something terrible or a disease or an earthquake. But a really common question I've heard so much is, well, who do you blame for this? You know, who do you blame? Who do you blame? As if, of course, there's someone to blame. This bad thing happened, and the first thing we better do is figure out who to blame. And a lot of time when we're sitting here, there's no one to blame but me. So we turn that in on ourselves. Really easy to say, this is happening, and it shouldn't be happening. So what am I doing wrong in my practice? Has that occurred to anybody ever when something was going on? Rather than, oh, this is difficult. It feels like this right now, opening with a tenderness, tender quality of mindfulness, awareness. But no, it's like, no, who do we blame? This is wrong. It shouldn't be happening. Immediately, aversion comes in. The Buddha, talking to some followers, says, when one dwells, when one lives with a mind obsessed and oppressed, by ill will, and just so you know, he goes on to says the same thing about greed or lust and about delusion and confusion, but here we're talking about ill will. When one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will, and does not understand as it really is the escape from the arisen ill will. On that occasion, one neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. Just, you know, explore that next time you notice some unwanted experience is occurring, thoughts, emotions, a sound, someone else's behavior, your body doesn't feel good, whatever it is. And if you see the awareness is recognizing that immediate knee-jerk, this shouldn't be happening, you know, what can I do to fix it? Just kind of notice the quality. When the mind is obsessed, oppressed by ill will, there's no way to see clearly. Whatever we try to do to fix it, coming out of that ill will just isn't coming from any kind of clarity. We can't see clearly what's good for ourselves, what's good for another, what's the good of both. And so this is something that our steady awareness is what's allowing us to see. That's why the continuity is so powerful. So the sense of this, this tendency to think this shouldn't be happening. Blame outward, blame inward, you know, as somehow... We're going to be able to fix it. And fix it means, as in Joko Beck's words, somehow I can hold myself separate from this painful and difficult experience. Somehow I'm here and this is going to go over there. This is the way I think about it. It's like one of the basic expressions of the delusion of understanding reality in ourselves that comes when the mind is obsessed with ill will or with greed, or with confusion. It creates this sense of separation, a beautiful experience that we can't have, a difficult one we are with, confusion we don't know what, this sense of the other, you know, me and the other. And if it's difficult, we can keep ourselves separate from the other. If it's wonderful and we don't have it, then we, it feeds this sense of insufficiency, something else needing to be got something else is going to make me complete, or this has to go away for completion, for ease. And this delusion of separation and inadequacy and insufficiency continues to be fed as long as the mind is obsessed with the calatia because it can't see accurately why it's so important to take care of our awareness rather than getting involved right away and trying to fix things. Because we're trying to fix it through the lens of the ill-will, of the blame, of the not understanding. And that just keeps the whole thing going. It keeps us looking, at, as Krishnamurti said, to seek the truth is to deny it. Where else are we going to find it? As Dogen Zenji, the great Zen master from Japan said, if you can't find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? It's only right where we are. And at least 33% of the time, right where we are might be an unwanted experience. And if we're wanting it to go away to see the truth, right in that moment, that delusion is being fed and increased that's denying, not allowing. The simplicity of awareness and wisdom, oh, this is what there is. This is reality. This moment is complete. There is no other moment. So in, in a way, it's when I was talking the other night about the poignancy of thinking the only escape from arisen unpleasantness or ill will is to seek after pleasure, this is really the deep poignancy. It's what keeps our confusion, spinning, our sense of, of incompleteness, inadequacy, loneliness, self-centeredness, spinning the the quality of awareness, wisdom that just is present with openness, that tender heart, in whatever unwanted experience that's not only there is arisen compassion, that's the wisdom, that's the freedom, just in that moment. But it's not necessarily the training of the habit of our mind the way we want to go. So again, in our retreat here, a little microcosm of our life. So the, the incidents that occur here may be rather small, Although the reactions that come up in our mind may be rather large, have you noticed that? It's just that they ran out of bananas. <laughs> why am I so distressed? You know, why are you having to forcibly hold your hand from snatching the banana off that other person's plate? You know, it's like it seems out of a, a little exaggerated. It is. That's okay. It helps us see it better. There's a sign, Otegenia has a line I really like. He says, concentration magnifies. So when the mind's beginning to get a little more collected, it magnifies. You know, we see things more clearly. But the Kaleishas exaggerate. So you might be really calm, really present, just, you know, you're just walking to the meal, you're really present, and suddenly some desire comes up. We don't quite see. People have said, suddenly they've turned around and they're, you know, halfway to whatever it is you're going to do without even noticing it. Desire gets huge because the kalesha exaggerates the importance of everything, and the concentration magnifies that. So we call this actually, in our parlance, yogi mind. All of a sudden something comes up that you need or that you hate or that has to be fixed and it is life or death, you know. You know, we we get these notes, you know, or bursting into the it's not office hours yet. You're standing there like waiting till office hours so you can burst in and say, Don't you know the kind of toothpaste you have in there is really not the best kind to have. This kind I'm not making up this stuff. This is the kind of stuff (laughs) that You should see what goes on in a three-month retreat here. (laughs) Just so you know, we're all in this together. When you find you need to write a note to the maintenance or the cooks or us, please, any of us, and it has this, my God, don't they know for the benefit of all beings, let me write this note. Take a moment. (laughs) Reflect a little bit. (laughs) Just take care of the quality of awareness (laughs) before you do that. That's for the good of all beings, especially us. (laughs) But anyway, that's just a little example. That was a sidetrack. But in terms of our practice here, in terms of recognizing the difference between the kind of knee-jerk reaction of shutting down, protecting the soft heart of fear, aversion, blame, and that but just the simple resting at ease in whatever arises that manifests as compassion. The circumstances here are all we need. This is where we start. It's like a whole book, Payment Children, start where you are. We start where we are. Each little or big thing that arises that's unwanted is in this moment the place of practice. And it's all that we need. The circumstances of our life are all we need. I want to read this little um, story from Milarepa. You know, he was the great Tibetan, most famous Tibetan yogi from oh centuries ago, and he it's called. He lived up in caves, you know, for years and years and years, and really considered one of the most you know awakened beings coming out of Tibet. And he wrote many, many, many songs uh, from his practice. I'm very just reading little hints of this one. but it speaks to this, you know, in a kind of mythical way. So he's been up in his cave for who knows how long, years, right? And so he was out uh, and his mind became blissful and he was carrying some wood back up to his cave. So this is when you're having a good day. His mind's blissful, you're carrying wood up to the cave, everything's copacetic, the practice is going well, When he arrived there, he found in the cave seven metal demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Okay, that's weird. (laughs) Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding sampa to eat, some sat performing various magical tricks. So what I get out of that is they've moved in right? They've moved in. Like Steve was saying, you don't realize they're visitors. They've made themselves at home, these demons, doing all different. As soon as Mila saw them, he became frightened. And this is our normal response. So he, he meditated on his deity. He uttered a subjugating mantra, you know, you guys go away. He performed a, a gaze to scare them off. He aroused his deity's presence. So we're doing all the things we can do to make that go away, those demons, right? Then he meditated on compassion and friendliness. (laughs) That's the last. But he was still unable to pacify them, you know, because that's so. he thought, well, these must be local deities. I've been here for a long time, months and years, but I have not praised them. So then he sang a song of praise to these, you know. But you can tell it's kind of, he did all the negative stuff first. It's a little bit half-hearted. So he ends it. You non-human demons assembled here are obstacles drink this cup of friendliness and compassion and be gone. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? (laughs) We're trying, you know, we start where we are. But we bring awareness to this whole process as we're doing it so we see what we're doing. This is wrong, this is wrong. Drink this compassion and get the heck out. (laughs) So three of the demons who were performing magic did go away. But Mila was unable to make the other four go away. So realizing that they were magical obstacles, he sang the song of confidence, really of faith in his practice. So he's, he's moved, you know, from subjugating gaze to faith in his practice, which ends, it is wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse, <laughs> Right? So, three of them did vanish like a rainbow. The remaining one, though, performed an imposing dance, and Mila thought, This one is very powerful. So, he sang his song of the view, the pinnacle of his realization, which is long. I'll just end with it. <laughs> a demon like you does not intimidate me. If a demon like you could intimidate me, the arising of the mind of compassion would be of little meaning. If you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We'll talk out our differences. I feel compassion for this spirit. Then he prayed to his deity, grant your blessings so that this lowly one may have complete compassion. Thus Mila sang. And with friendliness and compassion and without concern for his body, Mila placed himself in the mouth of the demon, but the demon could not eat him and so vanished like a rainbow. From the Red Rock Agate Mansion. You get a sense, huh? With great compassion, we just open into the tender heart of this is what's occurring now. Doesn't necessarily mean in that moment it vanishes like a rainbow, but the fear the adversity, the sense of something wrong, does vanish like a rainbow in that moment. So we start where we are. Whatever is occurring, beautiful, great, of difficult, of unwanted, this is where the steadiness of awareness, allowing wisdom, is the purifying of our heart and mind. And that's an idea but it can be experienced because the difference between the blame and the unwanted and the adversity and the fear and that tender heart just being present with what is, when we can't control, when we can't fix, before any of that, it's a beautiful, really nourishing state of heart and mind. It's not, when we really are experiencing that openness to what is, there's no way we can confuse it with fear, or disappointment, or pity, or blame. It's really, obviously, a beautiful state. Beautiful because there's no longer, in that moment, the sense of something else needing to be for to be complete, to be true, to be at peace. Just what there is, nothing in excess, and nothing lacking. So we start where we are. How do we meet our demons here on this retreat? It's not before always that we can do something about them either. Ajahn Sameto, he's talking about metta, but in regard to difficult people or situations. He says, metta, and I want to say compassion too, does not necessarily mean Loving. The difficult person or situation. Because sometimes when we have an idea in our mind, I should feel meta. We feel, I should like love this person, we think, how can I love them? They're doing this horrible thing, you know. And we're all caught up in thinking about it. But he says, and this is, see if you recognize what this sounds like, what one is witnessing, the unpleasantness in a situation, thing, person, or in oneself, without creating anything around it. That's what I consider to be metta. To me, that's like a perfect description of mindfulness wisdom or compassion. Witnessing, really present with the unpleasantness in a person, thing, situation, or oneself without creating anything around it. Simplicity of total presence without pulling back. The sense of bearing witness, starting with our own suffering, it can then expand out to the world. But this is where we really start. And whatever is occurring in your experience is a perfect place to begin, to continue. Because sometimes, sitting here, there it may be worry about worries arising now about some experience at home. There's nothing you can do about it now just meeting that. Or times of being uh, ill, having something going wrong with the body. Uh, if you've had experiences of chronic illness or serious illness, you know, there's, sometimes there's things you can do, but a lot of the time it's really a, a very rich field for exploring this quality of really being present with the simplicity, just what is, without adding anything extra and sometimes there's something to do, which we can see more clearly when the mind is not obsessed and oppressed by ill will, by fear. Sometimes bearing witness is all we can do. But that is a really, I think, powerful expression of compassion. I've always, and, and I just like to read different, about different people and different literature and periods of time and history. And... Um, A lot of poets and writers and artists that live through really difficult, horrific times, part of what they do, I think, in their art, in their writing, is in a way bearing witness to something that's really incomprehensible or too awful to be with, but that the power of just staying with, being present, bearing witness, telling it, you know, is an enormous power. For compassion in the world, Maha Gosananda. most of you know who Maha Gosananda was? Um, was. He he died um, a few years ago I'm not sure, not that long ago, a few years ago. He was a Cambodian monk who, during the time of uh, the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge, happened to be out of Cambodia for many years studying, you know, in Thailand, studying Buddhism. But so, you know, millions were killed in, in the genocide in Cambodia. And it was, it was largely a Buddhist country, and basically Buddhism was wiped out. And all of his family members were killed as well. And millions of then Cambodians were living in refugee camps over the border in Thailand. So he, um, after it was so-called over, this war, and the, a new government came in, he, he went to the refugee camps... And then he led um, Dhamma Yatra, it's called kind of Dharma pilgrimages. He led lay people and monks and nuns back through Cambodia, um, which at this time was so-called at peace. But the, the landscape of Cambodia was just littered with landmines, you know, from the war. And there was still a lot of fighting and so he would in, he would go to the refugee camps and instead of just you know stirring up anger or saying this is so horrible he would just go and go to the people who'd lost everything who were in total trauma and shock and start just reading the Metta Sutta. You know he would go in and read from the Dhammapada. You know um, hatred is never ended by hatred. Hatred is only ended by love. I mean. It takes such a knowing, you know, to go into such a situation and say that, to really teach it. But because it's the truth, it would really inspire. And people were coming from a Buddhist background. Anyway, in terms of bearing witness then, he led many of these Dhammayatras through the mind land of Cambodia, and he'd be going, and even there were soldiers with guns, they would stop and put down their guns and come and kind of offer flowers or bow. People that, uh, the poor people that were still living there, that hadn't seen a monk or any kind of peaceful um, witnessing to what's been going on in so many years. Really, really powerful, that kind of witnessing. He couldn't change it, he couldn't fix it, he couldn't take away people's pain, but he could just show up and be a witness to that. Really, really powerful kind of compassion. We start by bearing witness with our own unwanted experience. Mahagosananda said again in some, I'm not sure, I wrote this down, I'm not sure where he was saying it, I think it was at a a demonstration, a big demonstration in Washington, D.C., during that period when the, there was a really trying to end the use of landmines in the world. And anyway, he said, and so he knows from landmines, right? All the landmines in the world have been planted by the landmines in our own hearts. So to understand and thus remove the landmines in our hearts is the way to begin to remove them in the world. Really, we can only start where we are. We can only start where we are. I kind of notice in my own experience the times that I feel the most alienated, disconnected, caught up, confused, whatever it is that's going on. Not just something unwanted is happening, but I kind of don't know what's happening. Just disconnected, separate, lonely, whatever it is. I've been noticing this for years now, but I still keep having to find my way back to the balanced awareness. That that... When I get present again, I see that that alienation, that confusion, that loneliness, is, I want to say always, tricky to say always, but I can't think of a time so far when it wasn't. Is that there's something going on, unwanted, painful, that... I've gotten caught, the mind's gotten caught into the habit of wanting to deny, avoid, repress, not feel, not be with. And it could be some painful experience in my own body or mind, you know, my own habits or a physical uh, problem that I hadn't looked at for a while and it's back and no, this isn't back. No, this isn't what's happening, right? But it could be the pain of a family member who's suffering a lot and there's actually no way I can fix it. And seeing how the mind, the habit of holding oneself separate then, well, I can't fix it and it's too painful to keep showing up for, so let's check out, even in a subtle way. You see this over and over. So, so so-called internal, so-called external, but in this moment, some kind of confusion, some kind of suffering, some kind of difficulty, sadness, that I can't do something about, that not quite recognizing, not quite landing in the middle with a tender heart and bearing witness when that's not possible or haven't recognized. That sense of separation, confusion just grows and grows. It's so unsatisfying. And it it's so kind of self-perpetuating. And that, that opening to the tender oh yeah, yeah, she's really having one of her hard times again. And I can't say or do anything that helps And yet, still I can be present and listen. It's so painful. Can I be with this right now? And in that landing in it, just for that moment, it's a sense of ease, of of relief, of wholeness, you could say. The next moment, the aversion might pop up again. But this is, you know, we start where we are. It's what we can do. It can be extraordinarily difficult for sure even just as we see bearing witness to our own suffering never mind when it starts to expand in the world as I said before in payment children says you know how people say my own suffering is too much how do we keep our hearts open or keep coming back to that tender heart when confronted with so much I'm not here to answer it I'm here to say we start where we are but just like it's the same dynamic of heart and mind. Practice bearing witness with mindfulness, awareness, wisdom, with whatever unwanted situations coming up here. Not just to make it better, but because this is really the path of purification, the path of freedom, the path of understanding, the nature of heart and mind. I did read somewhere, again, I I don't know where, I don't have the reference about the Dalai Lama, who, as, as, you know, he's so famous now, so probably most, if not all of you have seen him around in a lot of places. You know, he's so joyful, he's so childlike, he jokes, he laughs, he's really so present with each person. And, you know, someone was asking him, how can you do that? Because he also being the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people is so that every time a new person would escape from Tibet, whether it's a monk or a nun or a lay person, they make their way to Dharamsala to talk to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and they tell him their whole story. So how many millions of stories of loss and death and imprisonment and torture, you know, has he heard you know, and so present. And so he's so present with each person. So if someone's reciting their story, he's really there with it, crying with them, you know, feeling with them. So, so present, 100% present. And then they say, how are you not continually overwhelmed? But they watch him, and so he's really there, that conversation ends, the person's gone, and he's really with the next person. And he could be laughing like a child, with the next person. You know, how can you do that? You know? And he's saying, because he's so, when he's with that person, totally present, without the resistance, without the aversion, without adding anything around it. And so it's totally that moment, and when it's gone, it's totally the next moment. You know, I guess it kind of passes through. There's not the residue, not the clinging of fear, of me, of aversion. It's just, this is what it is. So fully present, without aiding anything around it. The next moment could be a moment of total joy. Okay, a lot of our experience isn't going to be quite like that, mm-hmm. right? Just watch it. Back to how Sayada Utejaniya describes it, you know, when we realize we're meeting an unwanted experience, but we can, you know, you start to feel... That rub. Maybe we don't quite recognize the aversion, but we start to feel that rub. We think, I'm just bearing witness. I'm bearing witness. Yes, I'm bearing witness. You, know, but you start to see, okay, something is going on. Or you know something's going on. It's so strong you're drowning in it, right? And that happens sometimes. The fear, the pain, the aggravation, the sorrow, whatever it is, just comes so strong that even though we're aware, we can name it, we know what's happening, but it seems like it's just the more awareness tries to meet it, we're just drowning, right? When it's just too much. And so that's when, like Asayat says, that's when we need to really recognize that the aversion is taking over the mind state and we really need to take care of the awareness. Shift the attention to a neutral object or a beautiful object. Thich Nhat Hanh used to talk about in the, during the time of the Vietnam War, he, he was before he got um, you know, kicked out and couldn't come back in Vietnam again, but he worked a lot with, with um, students, like college-age students, who were doing social service work for it, during the Vietnam War. And so they're just seeing horrible, horrible things. And he says, I tell them, you know, there's so much suffering and pain and sorrow that they're seeing and violence. But I tell them, just be sure to notice some beautiful, some pleasant things. Just even if it's little, notice the smell of the herbs in the field at night. Someone today was saying, Oh, there's so many robins around. You don't have to get into a whole big story, la, 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 but just kind of, oh, yeah, you know. Robins, just a moment of ease or feel your breath or open to hearing. You know, as Tejaniya says, it's very important to adjust your attitude first. Take care of your awareness, how you're looking at the situation before you start trying to adjust the environment. Because otherwise we're trying to fix it, but just out of aversion. And we can be practicing trying to fix, but with that cloak of aversion coloring everything. Shabkar was another Tibetan, uh, much like Milarepa, but he lived in the 1800s. He said, meditating without compassion is simply inflicting hardship on yourself. So when the unwanted comes up, just think about that a moment. We're not here to inflict hardship on ourselves. There's enough in life. But we don't have to create the compassion. We can just take refuge in that simplicity of awareness without creating anything extra to meet the unwanted. But we do have to meet the unwanted. We can't skip this part and move to total wisdom and compassion for all beings in the world. We can't skip this part. So really, if we can appreciate the power of it, to see that once we can take care of our own awareness, can adjust our own attitude, that's when we really can move into compassionate action in the world. So I've been talking about it in terms of practice and looking here and not so much about acting, but I just do wanna re- do want to again make a point. Compassion when we've taken care of our awareness, when compassion, when we're able to be present, bear witness with our own unwanted experience, then unwanted external experience, painful suffering experience, well, we experience it as our own suffering. We're able to be there. We're able to see what can be useful and act, not from aversion, but we see choices in a clearer way. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King said, talking about nonviolence, Nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate them. So we're kind of starting in the reverse way. We're starting by not hating the suffering we're experiencing, the unwanted experience in our own experience. When we don't hate that, when we're cultivating nonviolence, Awareness, then when the hateful is external, we have the kind of the grounding to be with the hateful experience and meet it from wisdom and compassion. At least we have the grounding where to start from. I just well, I had so much else, but I'll stop. I just want to end then with this from. Mingyur Rinpoche. He's another wandering Tibetan practitioner living in caves right now. Right now, he he, he wandered off two years ago. He was went on a three-year retreat. He's Sogyal Rinpoche's younger brother, but he he went to Bodhgaya, But then he just vanished in the night. He didn't take his passport. He didn't take any money. He didn't take a toothbrush. He went off just like Milarepa, you know. It's really, it's kind of cool. So. A couple of years in, he ran into one of his very devoted disciples who was with him a while and then left. I just want to read a little bit. He sent this letter out with his disciple. So he's really been wandering around in Nepal and Tibet with nothing, practicing. Okay, he said, I have experienced feelings of happiness and suffering, rising and falling like waves on the surface of the ocean. At times, food and clothing have been hard to come by, and I have felt cold, hungry, and thirsty. Even when I have begged for alms, I receive nothing but insults and harsh words. At other times I have received food and clothing effortlessly, without even asking for them, and in my mind it felt as though I were enjoying the pleasures of the gods. While I have experienced both happiness and suffering, the most important thing is that a deep, and heartfelt sense of certainty has arisen in the depths of my being such that no matter what happens i know that the true nature of these experiences their very essence is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion while all beings have great wisdom and compassion this is not always apparent And this is simply because they have not recognized what they already have. So from my heart, I sincerely encourage all of you to practice diligently as well. Practice awareness, he says. So thank you for your patient attention. Let us practice awareness diligently.